Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, we're finding out about the destruction of the public record office 100 years ago and the remarkable reconstruction of what was lost through beyond 2022 and the virtual record treasury of Ireland. We'd love to you to email your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. And also, we'd love to hear your thoughts on other shows in the weeks and months ahead. And don't forget as well, you can listen to all our old shows on the News Talk app, powered by by Go Loud on our News Talk website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. In June 1922, the Irish Civil War began with fighting in the four courts, and it culminated in the destruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland, and an incredible amount of historical records were lost. Over the past five years, a team of historians, computer scientists and archivists have worked on a project called Beyond 2022 to recreate through virtual reality the buildings and archival collections of what was destroyed. And last month, the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland was launched and it can be accessed online at virtualtreasury.ie. And to discuss this brilliant project, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Kieran Wallace is the Deputy Director of Beyond 2022 and is the Public Engagement Lead for the project. Zoe Reid is the Keeper of Public Services and Collections at the National Archives of Ireland. Dr. Lynn Kilgallen is a Research Fellow with ADAPT, the world-leading SFI Research Centre for AI-Driven Digital Content Technology, and she works on Beyond 2022's Medieval Exchequer Gold Seam Project and is Humanities Lead on Beyond 2022's Knowledge Graph for Irish History. Dr. Brian Gurren is an expert in Irish demography and local government institutions and is a research fellow in census and population records with Beyond 2022. Well, you're all very welcome. And Kieran, I might begin with you and we might begin just going back in time 100 years ago to this extraordinary act of cultural and historical destruction when uh, those records were went up on fire. So what exactly happened? So you have to picture the scene 100 years ago on the site of the four courts in Dublin. Uh, there was like heaps of rubble and what you had there in the rubble and the stone and all the broken metalwork and shattered glass in amongst it were the ashes of seven centuries of Irish history, basically the carefully curated collection of uh, archives and records across the entire sort of English and later British government in Ireland from the Norman invasion really right up to the late 19th century. Uh, The building that was destroyed and the building that we've been working to recreate was called the Public Record Office of Ireland. The main part of the building which stored all the records was called the Record Treasury and they called it the Treasury because they saw the records as national treasures. It was designed to be fireproof. There's a huge irony in this. It was designed to be fireproofed. They had removed all timber. There was no gas lighting. It was all natural light. Lots of metal walkways to make it fireproof and a wonderful fire gap that protected the record treasury from the building in front where there were fires and, you know, open fireplaces and gas lighting and so forth. In the Battle of the Four Courts, uh, as the sort of the battle raged, a huge explosion took place in the car park in the centre, what's beneath currently the car park of the centre of the Four Courts, and it sort of threw burning material in through the side wall of the records treasury. So instead of protecting the the records from the risk of fire in the front building, the fire, when it finally came unexpectedly through a civil war, began in the records, in amongst the records themselves. So you had this beautiful five-storey building. People might have seen images online. This five-storey building stacked to the rafters with carefully arranged records and medieval rolls and volumes of early sort of Cromwellian books and so forth. The fire was thrown in amongst those and the building just began to self-immolate like a huge self-feeding furnace, if you like. All the records poured off the shelves into this huge central conflagration and, you know, a pillar of smoke rose up over Dublin. Records were scattered thrown up into the air by the explosion and then fell out of this sort of plume of smoke on the city as far away as Hoth Head. Books and pages were fluttering down onto the streets of Dublin. These few tiny fragments of what had been 
ten, hundreds of thousands of records that had been smoothed, arranged, carefully catalogued and used by the public for the previous 50 years. You know, a collection that took 50 years in the making was destroyed in a single afternoon. And Kieran, were was this destruction just, were these records destroyed as collateral damage? Did people just not care? Was it just incidental or what was going on? Um, a bit of all. People certainly cared because the occupation of the four courts by the anti-treaty forces, so these are the people opposed to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, they had occupied the four courts complex and within the complex was the public record office. And the occupation took place on Easter week 1922 and it lasted until the end of June. During that long occupation, um, various historians, uh, court officials and so forth had contacted both sides, both the anti-treaty occupying force and the new provisional government and the National Army force and said, be very careful guys, inside this railings is the national record patrimony of the Irish people, let's say. And both sides assure them, don't worry, we know how important it is. Um, But in the heat of battle, it's impossible to predict how battles will flow. And when you've got something as combustible as five stories of records on open shelving that are designed to be sort of let the air at them, they, they make for this dreadful fire. So the sense of what was in the building was very much there. The scholarly, historical and archival community, the courts community were very clearly aware of the risk that was happening, that was to the, all these records. But when the battle began, I think all bets are off. Once the shooting starts, all bets are off, really. And Zoe, it isn't a story of let's fast forward 100 years and people trying to, to recreate what was lost. People tried to rescue these and there were attempts to conserve and protect and salvage going all right at the very start. It's it's incredible. It was really quick. So the four courts went up on the 30th of June. By the 10th of July, um, they were sort of saying the OPW needs to take charge of the site in the four courts. By the 13th of July, they placed um, a gentleman called John Chandler Smith in charge of the, the, the site uh, in terms of a structural engineer. And by the 17th of July, staff from the public record office were on site going through that rubble and beginning to see what they could find. Collections that they'd worked with, they knew so well, they were literally digging them out from beneath the building rubble. And that work started in July and continued for the best part of a year um, up until June 1923. And what they were doing was they were retrieving items, they were taking them, literally covered obviously in soot and gravel and everything, taking them over to rooms in Dublin Castle, brushing them down as best they could and identifying them. And of course, these were the right people. They knew the collection so they could try and identify. And when we say identify, in some cases, we're talking about things that literally looked as if they'd come out of the grate of a fire um, that had been so badly affected by the heat of the fire that they had shrunk and warped and distorted. Don't forget, an awful lot of the 700 years of Irish history was written on, on vellum or parchment, on animal skin. And that reacts to fire and the heat of the fire in a very different way to paper, where paper singes and burns. We're used to seeing what happens to paper. Parchment, if you imagine it's skin, so what happens is it dehydrates. And as it dehydrates, it contracts and shrinks. And that's exactly what happened. So these massive medieval rolls with maybe a hundred sheets, which had all been rolled neatly together around each other, that kind of looked a bit like, um, you know, a large wrapper roll of paper, suddenly became something very distorted uh, and sort of crinkly. I mean, there have been various nicknames that have been given to them over the years. One set of archivists used to call them the, the crispy cabbages. We looked at them in sort of early <laughs> early 2000s and we said, oh, they look like pompadoms because that's exactly what's happened. They've kind of shrunk and distorted. And so they took them, they wrapped them in brown paper, they labelled them and the, the preceding office and then the National Archives have kept them carefully since then. Um, so so it's, it's quite an amazing feat. They, we reckon the parcels that we unwrapped in 2017, there were about 400 of those. We, and that gave us about 25,000 sheets of either parchment or paper. Um, the knowledge that we have now since in terms of we know that other people worked in little bits and pieces, say in the 1920s and 50s and 70s. Um, so they definitely they salvaged as much as they could. It's quite an amazing achievement thinking back. And why did it take so long for everything to be unwrapped? Was it people were just careful about destroying it or...? I think everybody was yeah, very sensitive. But then also it was that key part of 100 years ago in terms of conservation, there weren't the skill sets that there are today. And that's a, a big thing. They did know, they definitely had bookbinders on the staff from the 1860s, whenever the office first was established. And they continued in terms of a long tradition of looking after bindings and cleaning things. 
But in terms of some of the more advanced technology, that just wasn't there. So I suppose it was a let's wrap it up and, and hope in the future. And very much you can see that by a project they did in the 1970s where conservation had developed as a profession and staff at the time took one of these medieval roles and took it over to London to the Public Record Office in London and asked their conservation section to see if they could help conserve it, which they did. Um, so that's a really fascinating and that's an understanding. And obviously the 1970s, they were looking at the 50th anniversary of the destruction, not the 100th anniversary. Very good. So Kieran, talk to us then about Beyond 2022 and maybe the team involved. And I suppose pay tribute to uh, people like my colleague in History and Trinity, Dr. Peter Crooks, who's been a complete visionary with this project, uh, Dr. Shay Lawless with ADAPT and in Trinity, who, who sadly uh, is no longer with us, but also played a, a hugely important role that uh, a really exciting team coming together to try and uh, salvage and rescue and recreate what was lost. That makes it sound like it was all this one fixed vision with the team already in the wings, ready to step on stage and do their bit. It really grew from sort of a very bright idea between Peter Crooks uh, and, uh, say, our friend Shay Lawless. Um, and Shay, as a computer scientist, Peter, as a historian, they had this notion, Peter had encountered sort of fragments and copies of lost records in different repositories as part of his ongoing historical research work, not connected with this project. And then Peter said, well, if there's copies and transcripts available in other archives like bits, you know, a page copied here, two pages transcribed there in Scotland or London or wherever. Is there more out there? So over the years he got small bits of funding. I was involved from the early days um, of thing. could we identify replacement issues, replacement records. So there was a record on a shelf in the public record office. It was burnt in 1922, but maybe somebody had transcribed it in 1900 and that transcription ended up in New York or Boston or Bristol. And if we could track the transcription, we could then digitise it and put it online and begin to reassemble the collection, if you like. So hugely ambitious when you think of the size of the loss. But um, once it began, the idea triggered a great response in the archival, in the conservation community, in the historical community, so as and in the funding community. So we're funded currently by the Department of uh, Culture uh, as part of the Decade of Centenaries programme. So they could see and we could see that the centenary of the destruction was coming down the line. So this was a perfect opportunity beginning in about 2016 to aim towards the centenary and to sort of focus minds and focus attention. And we began to get uh, historians archivists, uh, computer scientists, uh, conservatives like Zoe and her colleague Jessica, um, sort of on board. And But the amount of goodwill, like the participating institutions that came sort of and joined in was, we initially began in Beyond 2022. I should explain, Beyond 2022, you can conceive of it like the construction firm. So we're like the builders with the hard hats. They were building a thing. And the thing we're all building is the virtual record treasury of Ireland. So what the public will encounter is virtualtreasury.ie. That's the thing they'll see and that's the facility they'll be using. It's free, it's public, it's permanent, funded by the Irish state as part of the decade of centenaries. But Beyond 2022 is all the research thinking that goes behind and all the planning and the experimentation so we had uh, National Archives Ireland as one of the core partners because they're the, not, they're the successor institution to the destroyed institution and have some amazing collections and the conserved materials that Zoe's mentioned. National Archives UK have a huge amount because Britain and Ireland obviously linked over centuries. Public Record Office of Northern Ireland um, because lots of records were collected into their collection when Northern Ireland was set up to kind of address the losses of 1922. Trinity College Library because it's a long-standing library and lots of stuff has ended up in our collections um, and the Irish Manuscripts Commission which was set up in 1928 as a response to the losses of 1922 and it's been gathering all, not just state records but all sorts of records and publishing published uh, printed versions of them plus uh, 70 I think we have 70 now different archives libraries other memory institutions around the world from the west coast of California to, to Australia up and down the length of Britain Ireland North and South uh, that have replacement materials that they're very kindly sharing their expertise, their knowledge uh, with us and our computer scientists can make ways of making it all linked together. So you could have a bit of a volume in Boston, a bit of a volume in Oxford and we can reunite them on a digital shelf in the virtual treasury. And I've heard Peter speak before about how it's so great that uh, we have a lot to thank for bureaucracy, the way civil servants <laughs> were, were making copies of records. And but how did they all end up in different parts of the world? Why were they being sent all, all across? I can understand some of them ending up yeah. in Britain but, but not further afield. It's this great sort of, um, well, uh, I suppose 
suppose we'd have to thank bureaucracy and then sort of squirrel-like historians and scholars. So in some cases, you might have a historian goes to the record office and decides to write his or her great book on the history of Sligo or whatever, and they take down loads of notes and they return to their home location, which could be London or New York or it could be Belfast. Um, but uh, the there in some cases then, Earlier copies, this is a complex point, copies that were made even before there was a public record office. Somebody in the 1700s sent in a scribe and into Dublin Castle and they transcribed multiple volumes by hand of handwritten beautiful state records and they kept them because they were writing a great history. Their volumes of copies then get sold off on the book market because people collect and buy and trade and auction off manuscripts and these manuscripts get scattered. A lot go to America because American libraries and archives had very deep pockets. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, they were the dominant force in the the sort of... uh, archive buying and manuscript buying market um, so they would purchase them to make a wonderful collection So, and they've been while well, they purchased them they went across the sea they've been enormously generous in sharing them back with us now and they get what we're doing which is great yeah. And Zoe do we know exactly what was lost like do we have a full inventory for the old public record office of Ireland or is it as <laughs> as much of a uh, based on the records as much of a uh, an analysis as we can make We're actually really lucky um, the deputy keeper Um, Herbert Wood in 1919 he published Wood's Guide to the Public Record Office of Ireland and that has been the cornerstone 300 page printed book of the project and I mean that was the the kind of the link for me as well whenever I had that sort of light bulb moment whenever I realised this material that I've been looking at for years which was wrapped in parcels and always sort of called the salved collection um, actually wasn't a collection at all it was parts of all these other collections and it fitted back into this network. And that was the really exciting moment. It was suddenly like, okay, this is all part of the same jigsaw piece. So Wood's Guide has been, you know, that is the cornerstone definitely that everything's been built on. It was a publication that he worked on for a number of years and finally got published in 1919, three years before the destruction. So it's quite incredible. Lynn, tell us about your story then. How does a medievalist scholar get involved then with ADAPT, uh, a world-leading AI-driven digital content technology research centre? And how do, you, how do you kind of merge or meld those two dimensions? Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily something that I would have expected to get into. Um, I started my my training as a medievalist, uh, looking at um, medieval parliamentary records, so quite traditional uh, historical training. It's looking at uh, records produced in in Latin uh, or French. Um, And the bulk of my work in the project is still dealing with medieval records. Um, I'm one of two medieval exchequer gold seam research fellows and we're extraordinarily privileged really to be looking at uh, the the documents that we are. This is um, a series of financial records which were produced by the English government in Ireland from approximately uh, 1250 to 1450. So it's, it's, it's really an incredible run of records. And these are documents which are now held uh, in the in the National Archives in the UK, and they're they're Latin parchment documents, long rolls. Um, that they're, they're kind of the bread and butter uh, of of the material that we would use as historians uh, to look at the history of uh, the early English government in Ireland. Um, so you know the bulk of my work really is is looking at these types of records. It's producing uh, translations of these records um, and placing them within a, a digital framework. So it's using um, a program called TEI, the Text Encoding Initiative. This is a way that we mark up language, uh, mark up documents and present them uh, to, to the public on the website alongside actual uh, really high quality uh, images of the original manuscripts. So. I, I suppose I'm coming at it very much from a perspective of that that traditional medievalist training. Um, On the other side of it, um, there is part of the job I started working on, which is the uh, knowledge graph for Irish history. Um, And that really began uh, exciting collaboration for me with the computer scientists in the ADAPT Centre, particularly in in earlier days, Dr. Christoph de Bruyne and later Dr. Fabrizio Orlandi, both working with Professor Declan O'Sullivan. So this is leading uh, the, the Knowledge Graph team. So the, the Knowledge Graph um, is a really central part of the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. Um, it's kind of underpinning a lot of the uh, search 
functions that we would use. And it's allowing us ultimately to connect the various peoples, uh, places, uh, offices or organizations, which we find mentioned across a whole array of, of our historical documents and connect these uh, together. And Lynn, working closely with computer scientists, you're not a computer scientist yourself, but uh, it's been very exciting to be able to, to work with different types of experts and see what they can bring to it. What value do they bring and what do they add to a project like this? Because you wouldn't automatically think that computer scientists would be able to transform what we can do here. I think for, for me personally, one of the, the huge insights that I got from working with the computer science team is how uh, much our visions um, aligned in terms of democratizing this historical data and opening it out to a wider community, whether that's you know the interested public, uh, whether that's scholars and researchers, or whether that's you know researchers on a on a computer science side, it's um, one of the the core principles that underpins all of our work. So there's a confluence of um, of ideas, uh, which is really really exciting to work with as a as a historian too. And Brian, it's been very interesting then to have to make these decisions about what to conserve and what is important and what matters. And I think you've been uh, crucial in helping to advise on that as well. Yes, indeed, uh, Patrick. Um, I was very fortunate uh, to be invited into by the National Archives, by Zoe in the National Archives, to look at um, a wonderful collection of Dublin port records a magnificent collection that was in the public record office and uh, survived. It was fortunately survived. And when I walked into the room, it took my breath away to see the uh, the material that was laid out. Uh, I didn't think you could possibly touch it without it falling uh, asunder, without it without it crumbling. So I was concerned. As an historian, we usually get to work with material that is already conserved and is quite robust. But this material looked to me to be very flimsy. But and these were receipts for payments that were made for uh, the first quarter of 1818 uh, to employees in Dublin Port. Um, and there are various different sums or various different salaries that were paid. Um, as I was flicking through them, I came across um, a name that I'm quite familiar with, Theobald Richard O'Flaherty. He was receiving £10 for his work uh, in Dublin Port, but he was also a member of the Record Commissioner and he was responsible for compiling an index. There were volumes that were outlining trade between Dublin Port and other ports in Ireland, uh, ports in Britain, ports on the continent, ports of the rest of the world. Very good. Well, tonight we are talking about Beyond 2022 and the recreation of the virtual record treasury of Ireland. And we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be looking at some of the collections in detail and finding out about the impact of the project. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the Beyond 2022 project and the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland, fully accessible for free online at virtualtreasury.ie. And I'm delighted to be joined by my panel of experts, Dr. Kieran Wallace, Deputy Director of Beyond 2022 and the Public Engagement Lead for the project, Zoe Reid, the Keeper of Public Services and Collections at the National Archives of Ireland, Dr. Lynn Kilgallen, a Research Fellow with ADAPT, working on Beyond 2022's Medieval Exchequer Gold Scene Project and Humanities Lead on Beyond 2022's Knowledge Graph for Irish History and Dr Brian Gurren, an expert in Irish demography who's the Research Fellow in Census and Population Records with Beyond 2022. Kieran, can I ask you, how have people been finding the virtual treasury then when they've accessed? Because you can have great fun with it. You can type in your name, you can type in other family names, you can type in a place. And it really is a way of losing yourself for hours in it. But I wonder what has been the response from from people that you found? The response has been really positive. Uh, we had, as we feared, but we were prepared to accept. On the first day, the thing nearly fell over with the amount of people who rushed at us. So we were, people were saying, why it's so slow? But we... we put lots more computers on it and it eased off over the first sort of 12 hours but that's a sign of success I suppose um, but the, the public response has been has been wonderful um, and the I think because it is the ultimate rabbit hole uh, I mean it's worth saying it's not set up like say a you know a commercial genealogy website which is just family names and you key in a family name and all you get is family name results Ours is a reflection of a state archive, yeah. so it's organised in much more archival way. So it takes a little bit more, but 
it takes a little bit more thinking about how you're going to search. But in fact, I find that myself. I waste, I use a lot of times my job on the virtual treasury. You you keep, you can put in a single word, put in the word Sligo or the word Wallace or whatever, and you'll get back, you know, 10 or a dozen or 110 hits. And they're very random. They're spread across, you know, all time and all types of records. You can limit it by date. So you can do the date slider. You can say, I only want records before 1500 or after 1800 or what have you. Um, and by repository. So only show me things held in the National Archives. Only show me things that have digital images that are held in the National Archives. Mm-hmm. So you can get only, like the digital image results will go to the top anyway. So you'll we have some finds some results which are just text if you like but everybody's usually most interested in things that have pictures so the pictures replies are always put to the top of your responses but that's on the actual website itself where you're going in you can do a basic search you can do an advanced search and uh, open document and see related documents but there's also another way into the collection which is aimed at very much at the non-expert very much it could be at just somebody with a casual interest what's this all about it's a virtual recreation it's a 3D model of the destroyed building so when you go to virtualtreasury.ie and you get the web page in the top right hand corner you'll see a, a logo to say take virtual tour and you click on that and the 3D model opens up on your laptop or your tablet you can manipulate the building move around the outside of the building click on target hotspots and see little photo galleries of stories and then you can go inside the building and look at that wonderful reading room where people worked for 50 years looking at the records sat by their open fires um, and you can go through a thing that nobody could ever do before who wasn't who was a member of the public you can go through the passageway through the fire break into the record treasury and look around the shelves and, and have a sort of a rummage on the shelves and, and sort of click open the whole building like a big doll's house and, and sort of look at different hero documents if you like particularly interesting documents the idea here is A to be accessible and entertaining but B to maybe catch people's attention and they'll say right this is not so scary as I thought archives are a bit scary they're a bit off-putting if you're not familiar this will carry me through I see a record that's interesting what's this about and you click further and suddenly you're in the, the website looking and you're, we've, we've, we've caught you sort of thing um, it's free it's open so get on and play on it yeah. And have you heard anything back from people about things they've found and discovered <coughs> and what, what has really appealed to them the most? We, we have had some um, people from from local historians, family historians, people who found quite random things. So an important element that that allows people to find interesting stuff is we have used brand new technology called Transcribus, which is machine transcription of handwriting. So we're all used to searching like a text on the screen. You do Control F and you can search through a printed document. But Transcribus has transcribed. We've got like fifty million words of Irish history on the website. So you can hunt through a handwritten document to find the word for your surname or your place name. But people have come back with things they've been looking for. It could be um, uh, trying to find out why a certain family member was in Sligo. I think somebody who said they found out why a particular family member was in Limerick because they found them listed amongst sort of corporation officials in Limerick that they didn't know that's why they were in Limerick for a certain number of years. So by chance, a combination of a place name, a person name and a date said, ah, that's why great uncle Ebenezer was down in Limerick in 1802. Um, So that type of find... The maps have been re- have got a really good response. There's a wonderful selection of maps. These are grand jury maps and later maps. The grand juries were kind of before the county councils and people go on and they look at their home place um, and you can zoom in very tight on these maps and see how your local town or village has evolved, you know, where there were police stations, where there were post offices opening and that sort of uh, visual depiction has, I think, allowed people to understand their own location back through time. So I think the we're only just beginning to get responses back from the public, but it's been very gratifying, very gratifying. Excellent. And of course, Zoe, none of this would have been possible except for the brilliant work of uh, the archives, places like your National Archives, like the Irish Manuscripts Commission and the great work they've done, as, as Kieran has said, since 1928 uh, without the Public Record of, uh, Office of Northern Ireland. That uh, If we didn't have that great work and that body of work, we wouldn't have been able to to do this at all. Exactly. It's, you know, it, it is that importance of why have a national archives? Why is it important to a country? And it's not just important to officials, it's important to the people as well. Um, and I think that is what's great about the Virtual Record Treasury is that it is opened up many, many different layers of history. I mean, the thing to, to point it out as well, one question we did get is it will only contain records that would have been there up until 1922. Um, so obviously... All the other institutions that are partners in this have their own websites that can still be accessed for more contemporary records. But it is that look back in history. And it is that sense of 
that we all have a shared history. And Zoe, what has it meant being a core partner in this? What has it meant for the National Archives? Because Brian mentioned earlier about the democratisation of of history in the past. And I think we're really seeing that with projects like this. I think what's been fantastic about this project and fantastic for the National Archives is the collaboration. This whole thing has been built off huge collaboration, as Kieran's already mentioned, but from us as well internally. I mean, for conservators, if I take us very specifically as a group, we're used to working behind the scenes within an archive. We're given stuff to conserve. We look at it. We get first, we get up close and personal with material in a way that other people don't. But because there was so much within this, it was almost like, well, where do you start? And the only way I could think of of starting was, well, let's talk to the people who know what should have been there, what is important. So from the beginning, I was really keen to engage with historians and say, guys, come and talk to us. Here's a list. This is what it says on the label. I don't know whether that's really exciting to you or actually this label over here is really exciting. And from the very beginning, because we were engaging with different people, it was like, you tell us. Then we looked at it as conservators and we said, okay, we can do something, we can't do something, because I was terrified that we knew we had limited resources. I was really worried that we'd waste those and there'd be nothing worse than that. So that's why having Brian to come in and look at the Dublin Port material with us at that early stage, one of the documents he was talking about, we might have said, oh, well, that looks really difficult and tricksy to do. We might leave that till the end. Brian was able to say, this is the key document. This is the one that really you need to do first because everything else links back to that. And that sort of insight, we as Conservatives have never experienced before. And I think that's what's one of the very exciting things about the project is getting everybody working together. And has it changed who looks at sources? Because in the past, the people who would have gone to a... a place like the National Archives would have been scholars, maybe someone doing a PhD or someone working on a book. But now everyone can can can, can use it. Everyone can and everybody does. And I think what goes back again is that link to when the building was designed. It was designed as the public record office. It was meant to be substituting and supporting the legal courts. But back in the 1860s, it was like, no, this is for the people. And so that ethos has continued, even though the building was destroyed, even though we went through this and all had to be rebuilt and all these collections had to be brought together again. It's always been always about the public accessibility. Um, And I suppose the difference is that we're just used to accessing things in different ways. No longer, you can still come into the reading room in the National Archives, but now you can also do it from home. And the impact of technology in terms of digitisation, in terms of accessibility, has just opened it up to everybody. And that's what's, uh, you know, for somebody like myself, that's what's so exciting. I can do my squirrely little bits and play with my bits of paper for hours, but then knowing and seeing the excitement from the historians as well, that's been really cool. Like we can show them, look, it looked like this, and then ta-da, it looks like this, and they go, and they're really excited. And you kind of think, okay, Job well done. <laughs> and it complements rather than replaces the other work. And, exactly. And it probably will lead to, to, you know. It's just more of this. And I think from, um, again, conservation point of view and an archive point of view, it is that idea of this is the value. Here we can really demonstrate the value of archives to everybody because everybody can connect. And that's, again, what's hugely exciting and just is leading us into a more forward way of thinking about how people access our collections. And more broadly, do you think that's the future of archives to digitise more and to have more accessible? Because I know there's always a danger that if if too many people are touching and, and looking at documents, <laughs> then you're, there's wear and tear. Whereas, but then on the other hand, you don't want to make it all go virtual. So what's where, what's the balance or what's the... Well, that's it. That's exactly the pathway that we're on. It's trying to find that balance at the minute because if I'm very honest, we can't digitise everything. There just aren't enough. There isn't a big enough capacity to do that. So what we have to do is be really smart again with the resources we have. We have to look after and preserve the the original documents, but then we have to find ways to make them accessible to that wide audience. So it's a combination of both. And again, this is why, as the first example of this kind of collaboration, this project has been so important. Brian, people are always interested in census records and looking up their family histories and all of that. So talk to me about what you can learn from the census and population records. Yes, Patrick, everybody loves the census and the loss of the 19th century, most of the 19th century census material was really a great tragedy for Irish historical research. Um, Some material has survived and that is available in the National Archives and and there's material that's available on the National Archives website for searching surviving material from 1821 through to 1851. 
Well, as we were researching the census, we started to focus in on uh, a, a, a census that was conducted in Ireland in 1766. This was a religious census that was conducted in Ireland in 1766. And it commenced with the uh, resolution of the House of Lords passed on the 5th of March, 1766, when they asked the Church of Ireland ministers to return a list of the names of their parishioners indicating their religion. It was a religious census. Now, the population of Ireland was about 3 million people at this stage. So if every minister had complied and if every minister had returned full list of names, there probably would have been about 600,000 names returned to the House of Lords. Now, as we were working through surviving material from the 1766 census, and interestingly enough, there are original returns that survived for some parts of the country, for Armagh Diocese and for Cashel and Emily Diocese and for a handful of parishes in County Cork and County Waterford. Uh, but there were also transcripts. And um, Kieran mentioned earlier on about, about uh, genealogists and historians who were coming in and transcribing material. There were some uh, genealogists particularly at the beginning of the 19th, 20th century, like Tennyson Groves and Philip Crossley and Gertrude Trift and Bartholomew O'Keefe, who went in and focused specifically on this uh, census because it contained lots of lists of names. And they transcribed quite a lot of material from it. So overall, uh, out of these 600,000 names that we would have hoped to have, there are about 50,000 names surviving. So about maybe an 8%, 9, 8% uh, survival rate. But as we investigated further, we came to realise that even though the House of Lords had requested lists of names and some ministers provided them and some ministers went beyond the requirements, many ministers didn't. They simply returned the numbers, the, the number of Protestant and Catholic householders in their parish. And what, what we realised was that in places where we had just numbers for parishes, that may have been what was originally there, that there was no list of names for a parish. It was only the return of, uh, of, of numbers. So that meant that, that the survival rate, the survival rate, even though the names might not exist, the survival rate was, would be well above this 8%. But the trick was to try to determine uh, if you have the numbers for a particular parish, whether that represented the original return or whether it was just an abstract. And we came across uh, a hint that might lead us in this direction, and it was this uh, a parliamentary records index, um, but we didn't know much about it. And it was compiled by Theobald Richard O'Flaherty, who was a, a man that I mentioned earlier, I said that I'd come across him in Dublin Port, but he was also working in the record commissioner. And Theobald Richard, uh, with the record commissioners, and he spent 16 years compiling a 10-volume parliamentary records index. And it seemed to us that if we could get access to this parliamentary records index, that this would be able to, this would indicate to us for every single, for every single parish that made a return in 1766, whether they returned names or not, whether they, each parish has returned names or numbers. And after a couple of uh, requests to the National Archives, we found uh, the item that we were looking for. And indeed, it did list all the parishes that returned uh, 1766 returns. And for most of them, it indicated whether they were returning names or numbers. So by checking off our survival rate and for every single parish that we had information from, with the index, we were able to determine whether we had uh, more or less the complete return or the bones of a complete return or whether we were just dealing with an abstract. So that 8% uh, uh, figure that we had initially ended up increasing to above 50%. That we know that we, are, we have been able to recreate over 50% of this survey. The important thing about this is that the first statutory census in Ireland commenced in 1813, but it didn't survey the entire uh, country. By using the Parliamentary Records Index, which lists all the parishes that made returns, we're able to compare the coverage from the 1766 census return with the 1813 census return, and we see that the coverage is, is more or less equal, or uh, uh, the 1766 census, the coverage from the 1766 religious census exceeds the return from the statutory census in 1813. But also the 1813 census didn't return lists of names, so the 50,000 names that still survive from the 1766 census, there's absolutely no names surviving from 1813. So on the basis of this, 
we uh, are we call the 1766 census Ireland's first census. It's the first uh, census that was conducted in Ireland, the first real type census, and it really was the. If you think about the the great national surveys of Ireland, where you have the uh, in the 17th century, you have the Down Survey, a magnificent survey, and the Civil Survey conducted in the 1650s, and then in the 19th century, you have, of course, the commencement of the the statutory census series. The 1766 census is really the great survey for 18th century Ireland. It contains uh, coverage for uh, over 50% of the country. It contains uh, names, so genealogists can use uh, can use it for, for family history, but it also contains religious breakdowns, it contains population data, and in some of the, the cases, it contains really, really useful information on social history in the local areas. So, Lynn, let's talk about these medieval exchequer records and exactly the kind of information, because it seems that it has a lot about places, people in medieval Ireland. You're getting an insight into legal history, economic history, what social life is like. So how is this project making all of these old Latin parchment records accessible? One of the surprises about the records themselves is actually that we are talking about um, a long series of financial records, uh, which were produced by, uh, you know, what's effectively a state institution, a government institution, um, you know, before before even talking about how we're producing them, even just to reflect on the fact that we have an incredibly rich amount of material about um, ordinary persons in medieval Ireland is something to, to just focus on, I suppose, and, and, and to highlight. I mean, these are documents which um, contain long lists of either payments or receipts and the format of the documents and if people are going in and looking at either the translations we've provided or the actual manuscript images where you can see how all of these payments and receipts are are lined out row by row um they they tend to contain um, information about places. Um, so we see payments like rents, for instance, taxes coming in from uh, the the traditional areas you might expect in medieval history. So uh, Dublin, uh, Meath, Waterford, Kildare, but also much further afield, uh, say from Kerry or from Limerick, uh, from Cork, from Tipperary. So it's, 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 it's a really fantastic geographical spread. And associated with these place names um, are the names of individuals and they'll be coming into the the exchequer this institution in in, in dublin um around dublin castle usually um and they will be they will find a record of the um the item for which they're paying for this this could be a fine this could be for rent um various uh legal fines is you find an awful lot of those but there's a, a person name a person's name associated with them and all of these uh all of these kind of come together to create this intensely rich picture of what day-to-day life was like in medieval Ireland. Um, And what's, I suppose, most interesting to me is that it's not um, just painting a picture of uh, the personnel that you might expect uh, to be involved within an English administration in Ireland, an English government in Ireland. Um, We're seeing the names of of Gaelic Irish people as well interacting with that administration. So it might be, um, and and the connections between those communities. Um, We're seeing all of these in the original records themselves. So, you know, say uh, somebody's making a payment on behalf of Art McMurrah, so he can kind of continue uh, on. Um, We're seeing all of these. So um, it's quite important, I guess, when we're looking at these these medieval records to to look at the value that they have uh, for, for, tracing connections uh, between various different groups and societies. Um, What we're trying to do in presenting these records uh, is, as I was saying before, is is make them as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. And that means, you know, say with our translations, the approach we've been taking has very much to make the language um, accessible uh, to give variants of, of different spellings of names. Sometimes in one document, you'll find the same surname spelled a different way, 10 different times. Uh, we're, we're using the, the semantic web technology, the knowledge graph resource tools like this to enable people to, to draw connections between things that, that aren't necessarily uh, apparent or would take a very, very long time to do. So one of the methods we're using is to, as I say, use uh, a uh, markup language uh, to to 
put tags basically around place names and person names. Um, we're integrating this with our knowledge graph technology so that you can not only search within these medieval documents, but more importantly, actually, it, it's that you can link out to other documents either within the virtual record treasury or beyond the treasury itself. So you might find one individual uh, in, in one particular medieval record um, through using these technologies, through the way we're, we're hoping to present them uh, within the treasury, you'll be able to ideally find the same individual uh, in, in other sources, uh, perhaps, you know, in the future, uh, in, in, in uh, other archives or libraries, uh, you know, if they are using uh, similar, similar linked open data technologies too. Um, and again, see their connections to people and places in a much uh, broader sense. So it's trying to create something that is both lasting and, and really quite powerful as, as a research tool uh, for, for scholars, but also for anybody who's interested in connecting um, that, that kind of deep history in Ireland's medieval past uh, to the, the, the place names or the uh, surnames that we, we, we still see uh, in, in Irish history today. So, Lynn, it allows people to make these connections, as you say, and probably to do the kinds of research that mightn't have been possible before. And if it was possible, probably would have taken uh, considerably longer to do. And what would, might have taken 100 hours can now be done uh, in a much uh, quicker time because of this this technology and the way it's been all brought together. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, they, and this speaks to something more broadly in the project. I mean, the kind of um, technology and advances that we're seeing with uh, handwritten text recognition software, for instance, uh, like Transcribus, which is being used in other parts of the, um, the virtual record treasury, where, you know, you have um, machine uh, transcriptions, uh, so AI basically uh, creating transcriptions of documents, recognizing uh, the handwriting. If you can imagine the time it would take to um, it would go through the process of hundreds of thousands of words creating um, manual translations. If if the machine can do this, um, if you if you can make that text searchable, if you can attach it to something powerful like semantic web technologies, you you have something that can produce results um, that that can give you insights, which you know on an on an individual level, um, maybe you could do, but it would take a very very long time. So it's trying to to give options um, and see what really anybody exploring the records can make of them. In, in one sense, we're, we're putting translations or transcriptions out there, but it's going to be incredibly exciting to see what people will actually do with those uh, at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely remarkable. OK, we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the future of the virtual record treasury and indeed the future of beyond 2022. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate and discuss the virtual record treasury of Ireland. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel of experts, Dr. Kieran Wallace, Deputy Director of Beyond 2022, Zoe Reid, the Keeper of Public Services and Collections at the National Archives, Dr. Lynn Kilgallen, Research Fellow with ADAPT, working on two very exciting projects there with Beyond 2022, and Dr. Brian Gurren, who's Research Fellow in Census and Population Records with Beyond 2022. So, Kieran, talk to me about uh, the future of beyond 2022 that uh, when this year is over uh, uh, when uh, we go beyond uh, 2022 uh, as as Jed Bartlett would always say in, in the West Wing what's next? What's next? What's the future of the past? Um, one of the exciting things we found as we are approaching the centenary was that there is so much more to find. So to explain uh, there were particular collections in all the different archives that we sort of encountered or that archivists brought to our attention. We brought them into the virtual treasury. Everything we could platform and make available for the centenary that was launched a couple of weeks ago, we did. But we've already seen and put sort of put a hook in things for future integration into the whole platform. So there are major collections, uh, many major collections in National Archives Ireland, like real deep riches there, but major collections in London, Belfast, uh, the Bodleian, Cambridge University Libraries and so forth. Collections in Australia and in uh, the Library of Congress in Washington that are directly connected to collections in Dublin that if you could bring them in, they sort of re-thicken the story, enrich the story to a huge amount. It's 
so there's, there's there's a ton more work to do. When we began at the very beginning in 2016, we thought, well, we'll find some interesting scraps and it'll be a slight step forward for sort of understanding and research. The problem rapidly became clear was the problem was one of scale. There's so much there and so much yet to come that is genuinely uh, uh, sort of available and really connected and sort of each piece you bring in enriches all the other pieces that are there. That brings me to another side point that's worth mentioning. I should say, and as as uh, Lynn and Brian and all our colleagues on on the research side have become really deeply aware since we launched, we don't know what's in the virtual record treasury. We've brought in major collections as entire collections. We haven't read every single word. We're not sitting here saying, I'm the world expert in X. We're pointing people up alleyways and sideways and down avenues, down to records. So the public will be the first to encounter and discover. So it's it really is genuinely an exciting exploration opportunity and, and will become more exciting and more exploratory as more comes into it into the future. A new frontier of research. Uh, <laughs> Zoe, I suspect that this creates a momentum of its own, that as people around the world hear about this project and uh, go online and look at it, that then they look at their own records and archives and maybe what they have and that maybe they say, actually, we've got something that we could contribute to this. That's true. Um, Though as a national uh, state institution, we tend not to take personal records um, of the people. We take records of the state. What we have had and what we get a lot is inquiries from people. Well, what do we do? And what we're very keen and always suggesting what people do is look after their own records, but also contact their local um, archives and connecting with the local authorities is really important and local archive services. Um, and then I suppose what the advantage of this project is through the local archives, they've also connected in yeah. to the virtual treasury. So it's it's the, it's a lovely sort of circular way of looking at things. Not everything has to be based in Dublin. Um, and it can, I think, I do love the phrase local archives for local people. I think that's hugely important. Um, we don't have to take everything into a central repository physically in Dublin, but we can do it in a virtual sense with the virtual treasury. And I think that's also, you know, that engagement piece going forward is really important. And uh, Kieran, if there is only any sadness with it, is that uh, 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 Dr. Shay Lawless, who was such a brilliant yeah. scholar and such a brilliant visionary. person, a visionary, yeah. that sadly he's not here to the, see the... I mean, he, we've, we've felt Shay at our shoulders. You know, he, he was such a a positive power and we sort of we feel his vision directing what we're doing so we hope what we've done is where it would have gone with him but certainly the rails that he laid down with Peter at the beginning are very much what we followed yeah Well I think it's a wonderful legacy project for him I think it's a wonderful legacy project for the decade of centenaries as well and that what could have ended on a on a depressing yeah. note with the civil war and with the destruction of the records actually ends with something kind of idealistic and inspiring that things can be recreated, refound, rediscovered and democratised and open to the people. And the partnership and the generosity of, of all the archives around the country and around internationally that we've met have been so genuinely encouraging and so supportive of the whole project. OK, well, my thanks to my panel for uh, helping to bring to life uh, all of these wonderful records that you can, of course, go and explore in your own time online at the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. Virtualtreasury.ie is the website. My thanks to Dr. Kieran Wallace, Zoe Reed. Dr. Lynn Kilgallen and Dr. Brian Gurren. That is uh, it for us from tonight. Uh, my thanks to everyone who put together tonight's show. My producer, Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on sound. And we have some great more shows coming up in the next few weeks on everything from Irish to world history, from ancient times to the present. We've been talking history. Good night. <laughs>